morning. Happy Father's Day to all the daddies out there. Uh, or on behalf of the daddies represented by this crowd, uh, definitely something to celebrate this morning, Father's Day. Uh, also, this is a day that for many of you, maybe you woke up and you're a little sadder than usual because of the loss of a father, or whatever may contribute to the sorrow. And so as we say in moments like these as a church, like we want to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We'll even see that there's a time for both as we dive into this morning's passage. And so I hope that uh, if you come in and you even bring sorrow into this place this morning, that you walk away uh, encouraged and hopeful as a result of your time with us my name is Jamie. Uh, I am the pastor uh, predominantly responsible most weeks for opening up the scriptures as we gather in this place each and every week, and we're going to do that momentarily. If you're new and you're wondering where, where are we about to go in the Bible, this morning marks the third week of a, a summer series for us, a walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of the most criticized, complex, confusing books in all of the Bible. Great summer read. It's a book whose inclusion in the canon of Scripture has been questioned by many people over the course of centuries. Not only does the book include what appears to be contradictory statements within itself, but the author of Ecclesiastes appears to contradict other parts of the Bible outside of his own writing. And then there's the question of whether or not the author crosses the line into an unhealthy sort of pessimism, a skeptic and critic of God and his world, which begs the question, we asked it in week one and week two. We'll ask it again this morning. Why study such a book? I mean, why not play it safe? We haven't gone through all the books of the Bible. It's not like we've been through 65 and this is the last one. Why do this? To which from the very beginning of this series, I've offered five answers. Number one, it's honest. It's a helpful resource for those of us who have been preconditioned to hide our greatest sorrows and skepticisms. The author of Ecclesiastes will have absolutely none of that. The book of Ecclesiastes captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world arguably better than any other book of the Bible. Secondly, it's course shaping. It has the power to, to change the very trajectory of our lives, to help us to see the futility of a life lived in pursuit of meaning and happiness apart from God so that we might all the more turn to him as the ultimate source of meaning and happiness in this world. Number three, it's apologetic, meaning that it presents some of the, the most challenging questions of human existence. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why does it feel like happiness is, is always just barely out of our reach? The author of Ecclesiastes isn't afraid to wrestle with those kind of questions, helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God. Number four, it's doxological, meaning that it helps us to worship God, the one who reigns above the sun, the, one with, uh, the only one with all of the power and all of the answers, as we'll see even this morning. And then lastly, and this is not a comprehensive list, you could probably add more things to this list, but number five, it's practical, teaching us how to, to view and approach things that are part of everyday living, things like work and relationships and money and even death proving it to be a book that's not only timeless, but timely. And we've already seen that in this series for those of you who have been around the last couple weeks. And so for those reasons, among many others, I hope you're compelled to dive in this morning and then beyond, trusting that God knew what he was doing when he gave us the gift of Ecclesiastes, that according to the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what that means is that Ecclesiastes 
also is breathed out by God and profitable to God's people in its timelessness and its timeliness. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter three. We'll be in the first 15 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can go ahead and grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can take that as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the one that you do own is a little difficult to track with in terms of its translation. Let me go ahead and pray for us because we got a lot of ground to cover this morning and we'll go ahead and get to work. Father, help us this morning. I pray that you would, on the one hand, help us to see the hopelessness of life under the sun as we dive into these 15 verses that we would see the reality of our desperation, of our helplessness apart from you. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to go there. The author of Ecclesiastes is bringing us along for the ride into into these places that oftentimes on our own we would never go. As Tim Keller says, Many of us don't have the intellectual or spiritual guts to go where the author of Ecclesiastes is willing to go. And and yet it's in going where he's going, where he's taking us, that we see the beauty and the hope on the other side, that there is something better than under the sun. There's an above the sun hope, and we get to see that even this morning. So, uh, Spirit of God, I pray that, that you would give us the eyes and the ears and the heart to see and hear and receive, that you would stir us, that you would move in our midst in power this morning, that we would not leave this place the same as we came in, that we would have a deeper trust in you, that we would acknowledge more deeply our dependence upon you, that we would see the moment in the scope of eternity that we've been given to do glorious things for the sake and scope of eternity. God, I pray that if there are any in this room who are not followers of Jesus coming in this morning that that they would see the beauty of the gospel and be compelled to turn to you, Jesus, in faith. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So since we're still relatively new in this series, this is week three of a 10-week series. Let me me just take a, a moment to do a little framing for those who may be joining us for the first time. For the rest of you, feel free to take the next few minutes, check your Instagram, whatever you need to do, okay? But, but for those who are new, just a few things that I think will help to, to catch you up to speed. Number one, the book of Ecclesiastes is anonymous with no personal name attached to the writing so that even the most conservative of scholars are divided on, on the matter as to who the author is. Some would say Solomon. Others say that it's someone later in Israel's history identifying with Solomon in, in order to make a point, in order to get a point across. Namely, that if a king can't find meaning and happiness in this world, who can? What we can be sure of is that Solomon's life is represented as the historical backdrop of the book. And so you'll hear me as I refer to the author as simply the author of Ecclesiastes throughout the course of of this series, leaving space for the possibility of of whoever it might have been that wrote this book. But with the understanding that the life lived and evidenced in these pages is that of King Solomon. Secondly, the book of Ecclesiastes, I said this in week one, is primarily a book of questions, not answers. It will frustrate you to no end if you come in looking for answer after answer in the book itself. It's a a first-rate use of the Socratic method, you might say. The author presenting the reader with questions that we might not otherwise wrestle with. 
To come back to a quote that I've shared the last couple weeks, Tim Keller says, Ecclesiastes is not the place we find answers. It's in the rest of the Bible that we find answers. This man's job, the author, he says, is to push you to the logical conclusion of your position. This man's job is to lay bare the foundations of your life, to push you to the boundaries of your thought, to say, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And if you believe that, do you see what that leads to? To push you because he knows that none of us have got the spiritual or intellectual guts to really look and ask the question, why, why, why? about everything we do and everything we believe. And asking some of the, the very same questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to help clarify what we should be asking the rest of the Bible so that we might see and experience the meaning and joy of a life lived in glad submission to the triune God. And then thirdly, in terms of framing, the book of Ecclesiastes is filled with repetition, and that's kind of a big deal. Not only the repetition of words and phrases, but of various themes and observations about life, which is critical to our understanding the message of the book itself. Going back to the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 2, the author says, Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word translated vanity is used more than 30 times throughout the book. It literally means vapor or mist. It's like a breath on a, a cold day disappearing in a, in a moment or smoke rising up from a fire and disappearing into the sky. It can mean that life is elusive on the one hand, mysterious, incomprehensible, we try to grasp it, it slips through our fingers. It can mean that life is momentary, here today and gone tomorrow. As James says, chapter four, verse 14 of his writing, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It can also mean vanity that life is futile, never ultimately and truly satisfying, a chasing after the wind. It's not exactly the most hopeful of words meant to communicate the sensible conclusion in contemplating life under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he says. The author of Ecclesiastes leads out with, I think it's safe to say, the most pessimistic introduction in all of the Bible of the 66 books that make up the canon of Scripture, which he proceeds to follow with a question, one that he's going to spend much of the book grappling with. Chapter 1, verse 3 he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Another way to ask it, what's the return on investment? What does it profit a person? The author of Ecclesiastes is not looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. The under the sun answer is absolutely nothing. That phrase, under the sun, just as complex in its various meanings as the word vanity it's a phrase that has everything to do with unlocking the meaning of the, of the book itself as it's used nearly 30 times throughout the book itself. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world. Things are not as they should be. What it is to live under sin's curse, longing for something better. It can mean a view of the world absent of God, a this is all there is outlook, that there is nothing above the sun, no true meaning or beauty because life as we know it isn't, isn't a meaningful story, but rather a meaningless accident. The author of Ecclesiastes says, okay, let's try that on for size. Let's see where that actually leads us. It can mean under the sun a belief in God, but one that falls short of the, the triune covenant Lord of Scripture. The author of Ecclesiastes is going to use the, the name Elohim in referring to God, but he never uses, we'll, we'll see over the course of, of this series, the name Yahweh, which gets after the intimacy of God in interacting and relating to his people as a, as a covenant-making uh, covenant God. 
The author of Ecclesiastes never goes there. Under the sun can mean a right confessional belief in God, yet a functional living for the glory and kingdom of self. So that there's application for those of us who come in and we bring a, a right system of belief doctrinally into this space, and yet who live for the now and live for ourselves functionally, living as though this is all there is rather than living for Christ and for eternity. But then lastly, it can also mean under the sun a limited perspective on life compared to God's comprehensive, all-knowing view of the world. We'll see some of that even this morning. The frustration of wanting all the answers yet knowing that omniscience, all-knowingness is not an attribute that God chose to share with us. We'll see all of those various ways of contemplating life under the sun by the time we get to the end of, of this book. Coming back to chapter one, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Going back to the first 11 verses of chapter one, having looked at the endless cycles of nature, the world running in circles without any sort of true progress or sense of direction, along with the reality that generations come and go and most of us will be forgotten in the end when all is said and done, the author declares under the sun, people gain nothing from their toil. This is all there is, he says, vanity. And if this isn't all there is, but we live as though this is all there is functionally, that's vanity as well. Going back to last week, rather than accept such a hopeless conclusion without some sort of personal investment in the matter, the author of Ecclesiastes decides to, to perform a sort of existential experiment in the midst of his existential crisis, you might say as he ventures on a quest to find happiness and meaning under the sun in the hopes that personal experience will provide some sort of more hopeful outlook on life. And he comes up not only empty in the end, but hating life, to use the language of chapter two, and giving his heart up to despair. He first pursues the meaning of life using wisdom as a guide, only to find that not only is the wisdom of man incapable of fixing what's broken in this world, but the wisdom of man is also incapable of making sense of everything, of making everything add up in this world. Not to mention that with increased wisdom and knowledge comes increased sorrow as our eyes are open to more of the things that make this world sad. He then proceeds to chase happiness and meaning down the rabbit hole of hedonism, pursuing pleasure, only to find that a moment of laughter can't last forever, that the warm feeling inside from a, a glass of wine will eventually wear off, and when it does, we're faced yet again with the reality of life under the sun. From there, it's on to achievement and success, the accumulation of wealth and power beyond measure, which leads him to declare that, that paradise really has been lost, that there, all the world's currency isn't enough to buy true happiness and meaning. He says, I, I found pleasure in the pursuit of happiness and significance, but I never actually found the happiness and significance itself that I was searching for. I gained nothing, says the man who had everything. To come back to a quote from last week, C.S. Lewis in his Famous work, Mere Christianity, says, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy he says, I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking, he says, of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing 
which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, but something, he says, has evaded us. To use the language of Ecclesiastes, it's a striving after wind. It's a, it's a grasping at smoke. It's elusive and fleeting. And, and that's just life. The author then goes on to bring into our view the great equalizer of death, declaring that th- through, uh, though wisdom is generally more advantageous than folly, the same thing happens to both the wise and the foolish in the end. That no one escapes death, and even the wise are forgotten, most of us, when all is said and done. I just threw myself in there with the wise. That was a little arrogant. Even those who work hard, he says, are, are someday destined to pass on the fruits of their labors to somebody else. And, and that someone else could end up being a fool that squanders everything that we worked our entire lives to obtain. Which leads the author to what seems to me to be a resigned conclusion, namely that the best we can hope for is to enjoy what little happiness we have in the midst of all the vanity. Everybody encouraged as we go into chapter three? Verse one says this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born, time to die. Time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Arguably one of the most well-known poems in all of the Bible, right? Turned into a pretty famous song by Peter Seeger in the late 1950s, adapted by the American folk rock group, The Birds, roughly a decade later, To everything, turn, turn, turn. There's a season, turn, turn, turn. Appearing 28 times throughout the course of the poem, time is is clearly the point of emphasis here. When you think about time, it makes sense that the author of Ecclesiastes would go there in this book, right? Time's an incredibly fascinating thing. Oftentimes in this world, more, more of an enemy than a friend. At least when you hear people talk about time. Right? When we're young, time can't seem to move fast enough as we work our way toward independence. That day when we can finally watch our first PG-13 movie or get the keys to the car or finally go off to college and live on our own. And yet the older we get, time can't seem to move slow enough. Right? Each year passing more quickly than the last. People who are older in age, they're not making it up. It's true. Seasons of life flying by before we felt like we've had adequate opportunity to soak it all in. And many of us, if we're honest, we experience the both and, right? It's Father's Day, little parenting example. Some of you in this room right now are thinking to yourself, the the sands through the hourglass can't fall quickly enough because I'm in a season where my child doesn't yet sleep through the night. Dear Lord Jesus, please make the next couple of months go faster. And then there are others of us who go, I can't believe my kid is, and you fill in the blank with whatever age or whatever grade they're going off to. How did it happen so quickly? The very poem itself seems as though it's out to taunt us with its back and forth pairings like the the cadence of a ticking clock, you might say. Weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, tick, tock, tick, tock. 
love, hate, war, peace, tick, tock, tick, tock. Many scholars agree that the aim of the poem is, is not to communicate its meaning on a, on a micro level, meaning that it's not so much about understanding certain words and phrases like casting away stones and, and what tearing and sowing mean, which is really good news because those words and phrases are incredibly ambiguous in meaning. You can go read 20 commentaries and you'll get about a dozen different arguments as to what those words actually mean. There is no commentary here in Ecclesiastes 3, leaving us to our own speculation, and not simply with respect to the meaning of the pairings, but also with respect to the ethical implications of it all. There is no declaration as to whether various things that make up the poem are good, bad, or a mix of both morally. It's simply a description. It's not an advice column. And what it describes is comprehensive in nature. The various pairings listed throughout the program uh, poem, excuse me, are meant to capture the fullness of human experience, which is why it begins with birth and death, from first breath to last, the remainder of the poem capturing everything in between. The point of the poem is, is not ultimately to prescribe these things. It's not to say go to war because there's a time for it or hate people when sensible because there's a season for that. It's simply a description of the fullness of human experience meant to help us see that there really is nothing new under the sun. That these seasons come and go over and over and over again. Cycles of peace and wartime. Babies being born and people dying. Seasons of laughter and seasons of sorrow. Going back to chapter one, like the sun rising and setting and rising again, never seeming to make any true progress. In fact, the, the 14 pairings of opposites that make up the poem produce a net gain of zero. It, it all comes back to the initial question of the book. Chapter one, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the under, under the sun answer again, nothing. The return on investment is zero, nada, zilch. Every birth eventually leads to death. Every season of peace is eventually followed at some point by war. Moments of laughter eventually become moments of weeping. That's life. One thing eventually cancels out the other, leaving us right where we started. Like the sun, the wind, and the streams going back to, to chapter one in an endless, never progressing anywhere cycle, so it seems. It's an incredibly frustrating thing to think about. If you feel frustrated in your seat right now, you're understanding chapter three rightly. It leads the author of Ecclesiastes to come back around to his original question in verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? The, the first eight verses of chapter three have been proclaimed at so very many funerals. Maybe you've been to a funeral and you've heard this poem read. Not all of them Christian funerals, by the way. There are a number of secular humanists that have had verses one through eight of chapter three of Ecclesiastes read at their funeral or by the graveside. It doesn't take a Christian perspective on life to record the words that make up those first eight verses, does it? Now begins, verse nine, the, the reflective commentary on the poem itself, the part that doesn't get preached at very many funerals. One commentator I read this week describes verse nine as the most powerful of sucker punches, a sobering reminder of the bigger message of the book of Ecclesiastes as the author comes back to that question that he presented at the beginning of the book. What does man gain by all of his toil? He says in verse 10, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
It's almost verbatim what we saw back in the the first chapter. There are a lot of references back to the earlier part of the book here in chapter three. In his quest to understand the world using wisdom, chapter one, verse 13, the author had said, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Here it is. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That kind of repetition helps us to see that the author is communicating something negative here in chapter three, verse 10. He's saying the toil of life amidst the the never progressing anywhere cycles is an unhappy business given to us by God. That it's God who pronounced the curse upon man in the wake of the sin of our first parents. And in that regard, it's God who's given us what our sin merits us, life under the sun. But that's not all he's done. God is far more prominent in these verses than he is in the earlier parts of the book. In fact, uh, the Hebrew word interpreted or translated God is used eight times in verses nine through 15 alone. And so there is a sense in which God is now acknowledged by the author of Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 11, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Some of your translations perhaps use the word beautiful. Others More literal interpretations like the New American Standard use the word appropriate. The original word uh, translated beautiful or appropriate, either one of those actually makes sense based on the context. It can mean beautiful when referring to something like a a person. That's weird. I don't know why I pointed to myself there. Um, It can mean appropriate when referring to an action. Being that the poem in verses one through eight is one filled with actions, right? Loving, hating, sowing, tearing, weeping, mourning. It seems to to make more sense that the word appropriate would, would be utilized here in communicating the point of verse 11. In one sense, yes, God made everything beautiful in the story of creation, and he continues to make everything beautiful. Even now, he's working things toward a beautiful end. Yet in another sense, and perhaps more in line with the poem itself, God establishes everything appropriately and fittingly in its, in its time. That he's sovereign over the seasons of laughter and sorrow, war and peace, life and death. All these times and seasons are ultimately ordained by the one above the sun. So that none of us decreed when we would be born. If you did, I want to hang out with you after the service and talk with you and tell me how you pulled that off. Like, none of us knows when we will breathe our last breath. None of us can reorchestrate the seasons. God makes it cold in winter, and you and I adjust with our winter coats. God makes it warm in summer, and you and I adjust in humble reliance on a working AC. We're the ones who are constantly having to adjust to the seasons of life, operating differently in seasons of laughter than we do in seasons of sorrow. We're not ultimately in control of the seasons. God is. And not only is God the one who rules and reigns over the the seasons of human experience and existence, he's the only one with an all-access pass, which is why we're told that the second part of verse 11, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That on the one hand, Though we live under the sun amidst all the appointed times and seasons, God has put eternity and above the sunness into our hearts. It helps not only to explain the unsatisfied longings that we experience here under the sun, but also the desire to see beyond the, the times and seasons to the bigger picture of how everything is pieced together. And yet on the other hand, verse 11, the second part, 
God has decreed that we would not share in his divine attribute of omniscience, of all knowingness. We cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. God has not only orchestrated the putting of eternity into man's heart, a desire to understand everything, but he's also orchestrated that man be limited in his knowledge of the world. God has ordained both. That's frustrating, right? Derek Kidner in his commentary says, we are like the desperately nearsighted inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us because we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. We live in this ordered world with its rhythms and seasons and yet we're incapable of figuring out the meaning of God's activity in the world. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We can't see the full picture. We're limited in our understanding. In light of that reality, the fact that we can't see the tapestry in its fullness, the author of Ecclesiastes arrives at two conclusions, evidenced by the, the use of the phrase, I perceived, in both verses 12 and 14. The first conclusion Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them, for those under the sun, than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Very similar language to that found at the end of chapter two, where we're told by the author, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Going back to last week, some see these verses as a hopeful outlook in a sea of pessimism, the solution to the, the problem that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to, to solve. There's nothing better, that phrase used in the sense that there's nothing better than a, a good steak or a beautiful sunset. Are verses 12 and 13 a, a carpe diem sort of outlook on life, a call to breathe in deeply each and every good thing that God has given Call not to miss the moments that will soon be gone. Commentators like Douglas Sean O'Donnell would say yes. He says in his commentary, quote, under the sunlight of God's sovereignty, we should be holy and happy. Rejoice in the Lord. Obey Christ's commands. Do good to others. Eat your roast beef sandwich. Sip your scotch. Smile. God loves you. Seriously. And just to, to create some clarity here, all would, when you get to application, the so what of these various passages would agree on that. Yeah, in light of Christ, be happy and holy. But there are some who would say, before we get to application, while we're still seeking to interpret what the author was meaning to say, we don't have to go to optimism just yet. There, there are those who, and I'm inclined to agree with them, who would say that, that verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 are no more optimistic than any other aspect of the book. The author's resigned conclusion in the midst of all the vanity so that there is nothing better, that phrase is used in the sense that this is the best we can hope for. And I'm inclined to, to go in that direction because later on, even here at the end of chapter three, we'll see this next week, verse 22, he says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Or chapter five, verse 18, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Or Ecclesiastes 9, verses seven through 10, go eat your bread in joy, 
Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Sounds really encouraging so far. He goes on to say, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. You're headed for the place of the dead just like everybody else. In the midst of your vain life, the lot you've been given, enjoy what little you have. That's what it seems to be communicating, at least to me. Maybe words like those found in verses 12 and 13 of chapter three are hopeful optimism in a sea of pessimism, but maybe they're not. Maybe even verses like these are meant to push us beyond the bounds of the book to find our answers. After all, the verses that follow are not exactly brimming with optimism. Verses 14 and 15 say, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Just as many of the verses here in chapter 3, this morning's passage, point back to earlier parts of the book, so these verses reflect the words of chapter 1, verse 9, where he had said, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. That We can make responsible decisions each and every day, and we should. There's more gain in wisdom than foolishness oftentimes, and yet we're forced to admit that the seasons that we go through are not ultimately in our hands. We cannot decree that the plus and minuses add up differently. It can't be done. Our lives are ultimately in God's hands. Isaiah 46 verses nine and 10 says it this way. God says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. The, the author of Ecclesiastes is, is essentially saying, God is no man's puppet. Our job is to fall at his feet, not him at ours. That God has sovereignly ordained both our desire to understand and our limited understanding. And that's meant to cause us to bow before him and trust and dependence as the helpless creatures that we are. That you could think of it this way. Not only are we desperately nearsighted as it pertains to our ability to see the, the tapestry that God is weaving in its fullness, it's actually more complex than that. Apart from divine revelation, we're, we're left looking at the wrong side of the tapestry altogether. Douglas Wilson in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says this, he says, from the vantage underneath, Little is visible but snarls and knots. But above, the beautiful pattern of the work on the loom can be seen. As Solomon has shown, he says, we live our lives under the loom and everything we see is vanity. So how can we see the pattern above, he asks? The only possible answer is through faith in a sovereign God. That left to human speculation, we would only ever see what's underneath. It's an under-the-loom the perspective. If that's all we have, we should just throw our hands up in, in fatalistic pessimism. The, the anthem of the book becoming the anthem of our very lives. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The good news is that we don't have to live that way. 
because there's an above the loom hope, one that reveals itself through the lens of past, present, and future. Thanks be to God that we're not left to human speculation because God in his grace has revealed something of the pattern above in the story of redemption that the scriptures tell. A story that declares that, that God is worthy of our trust in every single season, regardless of how much of the tapestry he allows us to see. It's a story that declares past tense. Yes, God has given us what, what our sin merits us, the unhappy business of life under the sun, east of Eden, to use the poetic language of Ecclesiastes 3, a time to curse. But it's also a story that declares that God wasn't content to leave us there, right? Having established before the foundation of the world that there's also a time to redeem. Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, in his perfect timing, in season, God sent forth his son, Paul says, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says elsewhere, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise be to God that in his infinite wisdom and perfect timing, he sent his son, who stooped below the loom, you might say, to rescue us in our helplessness. As Danny Aiken says in his commentary, God sent his son Jesus into this cursed world to experience all of the times and seasons that we do. There was a time for Jesus to be born, a time for him to heal the sick, a time for him to build up, a time for him to tear down long-held structures, a time for him to party with sinners, a time for him to weep at his friend's grave, and a time for him to die. He entered into this miserable world to take on all of its pain and suffering. He took the curse on himself so that God could turn the evil of the cross, wicked men murdering the Son of God, into the salvation of the world. That Jesus himself came in the fullness of time to fulfill God's redemptive plan. That apart from Jesus, the best we can hope for is life under the loom. But that's not the tapestry that God's weaving. It's not the poem that God's writing. His tapestry includes threads of redemption. His poem includes a time to curse, yes, but also a time to rescue, a time to redeem. There's a better poem to be preached at our funerals in Ecclesiastes 3, amen? The poem of redemption in Jesus Christ. So that I would ask this morning, do you know him? The apostle Paul, to use this theme of time in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But if you're not a Christian, today is the day to give your life to Jesus in faith, trusting him, his finished work of redemption. He, he's, the, he's the thread that holds the entire tapestry together. He's the line in the poem, you might say, that makes it sing. And for the Christian, there are a few things. God did not spare his own son, Romans 8, 32, but gave him up for us all. This is a God that's worthy of our trust even when, and particularly when, we can't see all of the pieces of the puzzle. A God who, who's promised a number of things to us. He's promised, number one, that in every season, he is conforming us to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. That not one season of your life, if you're a Christian, is wasted. That God is squeezing every last drop out of every last season and circumstance to make you look more like Jesus. 
In addition, this is a God who's promised that in every season he is present with us. Romans 8, 39, nothing can separate us from him. That the one who stooped below the loom and knows the fullness of human experience is with us, ready to dispense with a heart full of empathy, mercy and grace to help in time of need. But then also, this is a God who's promised that in every season he is working together all things for our good. Romans 8, 28. So that you think about it through another picture, another image, every jagged piece of glass will one day reveal a beautiful stained glass window. That's our God. You ever thought about why the story of Joseph takes up roughly 30% of the book of Genesis? More than the story of creation. More than the story of the fall, which are kind of big parts of the drama, right? Joseph, sold at the hands of his brothers into slavery, falsely accused of attempted rape, unjustly confined to a prison cell for years. When brought face to face with his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, years later, what does Joseph say? Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That God didn't just mean the good things in Joseph's story for good, he meant the evil things for good too. That the poem of Ecclesiastes 3 prepares us, yes, for the reality of what we can expect to face in life, both laughter and weeping, both dancing and mourning, both life and death. But here's the good news. There's not a single tragedy, not one loss, not one hardship over which God cannot write good for you in Christ. The question for us is, do we really trust the one who sees all, knows all, and is sovereign over all? David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backward, he says, part of growing up in the world is learning to grow small. God intends us to be like children who trust their parents to know best because they can see what the children can't see. And they know what the children are not yet able to know. And here's the thing he says, the relationship of trust is built on the character of the parents. If the parents are good and wise and kind, then the child who cannot see the end from the beginning has nothing to fear. Time reveals that, that we're not ultimately in control of our lives. It beckons us to, to loosen our white-knuckled grip and trust our good and wise and kind Father. Some of you might, might go, yeah, okay. I'm hanging on by a thread these days. Can you give me something a little bit more this morning? And the answer is yes. I mentioned earlier that there's, there's an above-the-loom hope, one that reveals itself through the lens of not only the past and the present, but also the future. One of the great gifts of God is that he's given us a glimpse of the stained glass window of the hope to come, that, that God will someday grab hold of every evil tragedy and injustice and bring it into account. That's the meaning of the end of verse 15. God seeks what has been driven away. What that means, it's, it's better translated in the NIV. God will call the past into account. He will balance the scales in the end. He will recover the past. He whose perfect sovereignty is paired with perfect justice. In the words of one commentator, every time will have its day in court. 
And on that day, for those who are in Christ, the poem will be rewritten. And it will be a poem vastly different from that of Ecclesiastes 3. And isn't that good news? A poem without death, a poem without killing, a poem without weeping, a poem without mourning, a poem without loss, a poem without hate, and a poem without war. A day in which all the broken seasons and rhythms will be no more. A day in which time itself, in a sense, will be no more because a thousand years will be like a blink in the scope of blissful eternity. And here's the thing that, that we, we can't afford to lose in the midst of a message like this. It's an eternity that, that we're meant to invest in right now. Even in the midst of the frustrations of the seasons of life under the sun. Knowing that, that not a second invested in the eternal kingdom of God will have ended up being wasted in the end. Thomas Boston, one of the Puritans of old, once said, Each generation has its work assigned it by the sovereign Lord, and each person in the generation has his also. And now is our time. Sounds like Mikey and the Goonies well, right? Now is our time. We could not be useful in the generation that went before us, for then we were not. We didn't exist, he says. Nor can we be useful personally in that which shall come after us, for then we shall be off the stage. Now is our time. Let us not neglect usefulness in our generation, he says, that Not only is Ecclesiastes 3 a call to bow before God in trust and and dependence humbly, but it's also a call to look outward at the mission we've been given, to steward the, the fragment of eternity, you might say, that we've been given by God to the praise of his glorious grace. Do we trust him on the one hand? And then secondly, are we willing to spend and be spent for his glory? In a moment, we're, we're going to really get a chance to respond to those two questions in a number of ways. In singing and worship through song, where we're invited to sing our trust to this God who is wise, who is loving, who is kind, who is good, to declare with our lips, with our hearts, yes, God, we trust you. Even when we can't see it all. Even when the best we can see is a, a single knot we're not even seeing the right side of the tapestry. We still trust you because you, you sit on the other side of it all, above the sun. You see it all, and you're bringing it to its beautiful, consummate end. And then to, to declare as well, God, use me. There's a time for everything. That means that there's a time in terms of, of which you've appropriately placed me in the story. I sit in a small paragraph, but one that matters in the scope of eternity. Would you use me, God, for your glory, for the joy of so many others that they would come to know you or be pointed to you yet again?